The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. This morning we're going to continue the message from last week where we have been discussing the betrayal of our Lord, which stands out as one of the most heinous crimes that's ever been committed. And I suppose that the betrayal of Jesus would stand second only to the crucifixion itself as the worst crime that's ever been committed. The story here is occurs on the fourth night of the Passion Week. It's on a Wednesday night, and this is the same night in which Jesus gave the disciples the new church ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And after many other teachings that we find in John chapters 14 through 17, and after hours of pleading with his heavenly Father for preservation while he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus gathered his disciples and he said to them in verse number 46, Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Now, if you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's word. We'll start there at verse number 46 in Matthew chapter 26. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. And while he had spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves, from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same is he. Hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest, and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that thus it must be? In that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and ye laid no hold on me. But all this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled, Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Now, if you'll put your finger there in Matthew, let's go over to the book of John. John chapter 18. And here John tells the same story, but he gives us... uh, a little bit different details, and this is really the way that you have to read the accounts of Jesus' life. You have to put this all together with the different details that are given, because each of the writers has a little bit different angle as he views the scene. So in John chapter 18 and verse number 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, where there was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, 
cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake, of them which thou gavest me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and smote the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the reading of it today. We ask, Lord, you'd open up this this story to us and help us to realize the lessons you'd have for us today and draw us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to take you back to last week's message to get into the flow of our discussion. Uh, I've outlined the passage to give you a little bit of understanding of the, of the important points that we need to, to look at in, the, in this particular story. And we started last week talking about Judas' signal. The signal that Judas gave in the betrayal of Christ. The sign which he promised to give those that were with him who came to arrest Jesus was a kiss. Judas came to the Garden of Gethsemane with a band of men, a group that was probably near to seven or eight hundred men that showed up there. And there was a band that was with them. That means there were about 600 Roman soldiers that came, and they wouldn't have known Jesus on sight. Now, the chief priests and the elders, they, of course, knew Jesus. They'd seen him in the temple many times, and they'd heard him teach. But this band of Roman soldiers that came, they wouldn't have known exactly who Jesus was. And so they needed a sign to tell them, to let them know they were actually arresting the right man. Now Judas had made a very good guess about where Jesus would be. And we have no doubt that his guess was guided by the providence of God. But he also knew that every one of those disciples, at one time or another, they had pledged to protect Jesus. Uh, we know that they wouldn't, but they'd all pledged. They said, we'll give you our lives for you if necessary. And Judas knew that they had said that. And so to be sure that one of them didn't step forward, Judas said, I'm going to kiss the one who's actually Jesus, and you'll know that he's the one. And then I would submit to you that, that kiss is probably the most famous kiss that was ever given. Uh, whenever we want to talk about treachery, the fallback position is to talk about this Judas kiss. And the Judas kiss and Judas name has lived on in infamy since that time. Now we noted in the last message that the scriptures describe Judas as one of the twelve. And that is a purposeful, intended description so that we would know that the one who did betray Jesus committed a despicable act because he was actually one who was counted among those who are the friends of Jesus. He was a trusted friend. He's one of the twelve. 
He's one who lived and ate and walked and talked and learned from Jesus. He's one who saw his kindness and compassion firsthand. He's one who experienced the love and the guiding touch of the Savior. And yet he is also the one who decided that he would betray him, that he would turn him over to his enemies for certain death. And he did that for a pittance, just a small amount, the price of a common slave. Now we also looked at that and discussed how that it's very possible that people who call themselves Christians or even Christians themselves sometimes betray Christ. And it's even possible to be a pretend Christian, to be near God's people, to sit with them and to fellowship with them and to pray with them and to sing with them and yet never actually become a disciple of Christ. It's even possible for a person to be a Sunday school teacher, to be a choir member, to be a regular attendee in the services, even to tithe, and yet that person still not know Christ in his heart. Oh, and it's actually common to find churches and have pretend Christians who, who uh, people don't know about. They hide themselves for a good while and we aren't aware that they aren't even Christians. But in the last day, the Scripture says those kinds of people are going to be exposed. That's because the Lord knows those who are His. He has no doubt. And in the last day, those that have fooled us, the ones that we don't know about, Jesus will know, and they're going to be found out. And that false Christian, this kiss, this kiss of Judas is emblematic of that false Christian who will be shown no mercy at the last day. Now, I do need to go on to continue our study of this, of this passage, and I'm continually fascinated by the different parts of the story that are discovered to us when we just care to look a little bit more deeply. Uh, first was Judah's signal, and today we continue with Jesus' seizure. Now, I hope that you have both texts still before you because we need to compare Matthew and John. And if you'll look at verse number 48 in Matthew 26... It says, Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Now if you'll turn over to John 18 and verses 3 and 6. 3 through 6, it says, Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them, as soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Now, noticeably absent in John's account is the kiss. And so we have to figure out, how do we put these two things together? And it seems to me that the kiss comes between verses 3 and 4. And then after having received the kiss, Jesus stepped forward to meet the mob, and he said, Whom seek ye? Now, before that, when Jesus, uh, Judas approached Jesus... Jesus said to him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? And he said, Friend. 
And we noticed in the message last week that the word that he used there is not a word that Jesus commonly used when he talked about disciples being his friend, but whether rather this is, is a word that doesn't mean that, he, he's not a friend at all. And Jesus knew that he wasn't a friend, and Jesus knew the reason that he had come. In verse 46 of the Matthew account, he already said that the one that would betray him had come. And so this is not really an inquiry. This is not Jesus trying to find out what's going on, but actually this should be interpreted, friend, do what you came to do. In other words, he gave Judas permission to take him. And that's important as we'll see in just a few minutes. Now, returning there to John 18, we we see one of the most remarkable displays of Christ's deity in Scripture and also words from his own mouth in which he declares himself to be God. In verse number 4 of John 18, he said, Whom seek ye? The mob approached him and said, Who is it that you're looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now they always like to attach Nazareth to his name, as if to point out what they thought of him. You remember they said before, Well, when was there ever a prophet that came out of Galilee? Where's there a prophet that came from Nazareth? So they loved to attach Nazareth to the name of Jesus. They said, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And this is when Jesus told them who he really was. He said, I am he. And the Bible says they went backward and they fell to the ground. And I don't have any other way to interpret that scripture, but that when he spoke, there was something that was so powerful in his voice, so authoritative in his voice, that when those words hit their ears, they could do nothing other than to fall down in his presence. The whole crowd of seven or eight hundred men fell like a wave at a football game or at a soccer match, for those of you that are confused about real sports. And so they moved backwards, and they fell in one great motion, one great motion, when that sound hit their ears. Now that, that should have been enough to make them stop right there and to think really hard about what they were about to do. But we see that the devil is so adept at, at blinding the eyes and dulling the hearing that this had no lasting effect on their souls. A few weeks ago I was interviewing Shirley Quintana for membership and she related a little bit of the experience that she had with the Four Square Gospel Church. And she said... She used to watch people fall down, and they were supposedly slain in the Spirit. And she said, I wasn't buying any of that. And then she said something to me interesting. She said the only time that anybody fell backwards in the Scriptures was in John chapter 18. They were definitely slain in the Spirit, although not in the same way that the four-square gospel claims. And I told her, well, that's a pretty good observation. That'll be sure to make its way into the sermon. Well, this was surely a different kind of being slain. They actually did fall down when Jesus spoke because he was speaking with the authority of God. There are no more words that are authoritative than these. And these are the very same that we find in Exodus chapter 3 when God spoke to Moses in the burning bush. That God said, I am. And those are words that are expressive of the eternally existent God. This is Jehovah God that speaks. And these aren't words that you use if you aren't God. But nevertheless, the stoppers were in their ears. The wool was pulled over their eyes. uh, And uh, we just see they they didn't believe. They 
they, they just fell to their knees and still got up to seize him after they heard these authoritative words. And, and I would suggest to you that this is just another striking example of the wicked heart of man, that the heart is so wicked that it takes supernatural power to overcome its unbelief. God has to subdue the heart because there's no one that recognizes who Christ is until God neutralizes the power that Satan has over him. And we see that with Judas. He never believed despite all of his advantages. And we see it right here with these men who are forced backwards at the sound of his voice and yet they're unfazed in that rejection of him. And so they come and they take him. But... It's amazing that their efforts are just so unnecessary. Now, I want you to notice, thirdly, Jesus surrendered. And, and I would suggest that a mob that was a hundred times this size, armed with modern weapons of warfare like tanks and bazookas and ICBMs, they could not have taken Jesus if he didn't want to be taken. Well, Jesus was not going to resist them, though. As William Hendricks can put it this way, he said they came with torches and lanterns to seek out the light of the world. They came with swords and clubs to subdue the Prince of Peace. And who can resist the irony in those statements? I mean, who needs a torch to find light? Uh, who needs a sword to conquer peaceful non-resistance? Matthew Henry commented in his eloquent Puritan style. He said, but wherefore this ado? If they had been ten times as many, they could not have taken him had he not yielded. And his hour being come for him to give up himself, all this force was needless. When a butcher goes into the field to take out a lamb for the slaughter, does he raise the militia and come armed? No, he needs not. Yet is there all this force used to seize the Lamb of God? And indeed, Isaiah said that he was the lamb that was led to the slaughter. I haven't seen too many ferocious lambs, have you? Anybody see a ferocious lamb? I was thinking about that, and I remember several years ago, many years ago actually, that Jimmy Carter was attacked by a killer rabbit. Does anybody remember that? If you're too young for that, you might want to look it up. But, uh, you know, I remember when I was a child, about seven or eight years old, my school class went to the University of Kentucky Agricultural Station, and we went into the barn where they were shearing sheep, and they were giving a demonstration of that. And I watched as sheep after sheep, they sheared them, and those sheep never moved, never made a sound. Now, the truth is, a sheep doesn't really like to be sheared. I read a little bit about this one time. It, uh, you see uh, sheep that have just been sheared, and they're standing out in a field somewhere. And you know they actually say that a sheep feels embarrassed when they cut all his wool off? That, that's that a give you a little hint, people, about taking all your clothes off. You ought to be embarrassed about that. But the sheep, you cut off all of his wool, and he's embarrassed by that. He doesn't like to be sheared, but he'll stand there, and he'll take that because he's docile. He won't put up a fight. And that's the way that Jesus went. He would not put up a fight. And if there had been a fight, nobody could win against him. Now, he was not going to resist because this is God's plan for him to go to the cross. Now, Jesus is going to fight. Someday he will fight, but not now. Someday he'll come as the lion and not the lamb, and he'll fight and he'll conquer. But for now, he must surrender. He has to give his back to the spiders, smiters. He has to give his hands and his feet to those that nailed them to the cross. He must do that, and he must give permission for them to take him. And so he said to Judas, 
do what you came to do. And as usual, this group of disciples had very little understanding about what was actually taking place. They weren't content to give up without a fight. And so now enters this puny defense that's put up by none other than the king of impetuousness, and that's Peter. Now, fourthly is Peter's sword. Now, the intrigue is building here as we come to this next part. And we notice what Matthew says, and then we go to John's comments. In Matthew twenty-six fifty-one. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Now, you see there, Matthew says, Behold, one of them drew his sword. There's no name there. Mark gives us no name. Luke gives us no name. But we go to John, and John blurts it out. John 18, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, John fingered Peter. And there's no mistake about it. He used both of his names. It's Simon Peter. He says, this is Peter. He drew his sword and he cut off this man's ear and he gave the name of the man. His name is Malchus. He's the high priest's servant. Well, I, I, would, I would submit to you that Peter was not aiming for his ear. Uh, someone said that Peter was left-handed and so he naturally would have hit the right ear. He would have to. And the suggestion, of course, is that there's something not quite right about left-handed people. And that's why Peter did that. But, but regardless of this, he, he wasn't really aiming for the ear. Now remember, Peter's a fisherman. He's not a three musketeer. So his aim is not really all that good. And his intent, I think, was to come down squarely in the middle of that man's head and split it in two. Now there's some who say that the high priest was wearing a helmet and the helmet would have a seam right in the middle at the top and so Peter was aiming for the weak spot in the middle of that helmet and so when he brought down his sword, he hit a glancing blow. It slid down the side of the helmet and caught the ear and cut it off. So Peter cut off the man's ear and I would propose to you that that is a very serious crime. A crime has been committed and that provides for us a clue why Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not name Peter. Their gospel accounts were written while Peter was still alive. And John wrote while Peter, after Peter was dead. And if his name had been included in the earlier accounts, then there would be people that would know that this was Peter and they'd have cause to go after him. He committed a crime. But John didn't have to worry about those kinds of repercussions. He wrote years later, Peter was already dead and you can't prosecute a dead man. At least we think you can't prosecute a dead man. Now, you may remember the story of how the Roman Catholics dug up the bones of John Wycliffe in the 14th century. And they took his bones and they had a trial over them and they burned them and threw them in the river because he printed Bibles. So maybe you can prosecute the dead. I don't know. We have to watch for that. But th this, is, this is interesting, I think, because you have all these little nuances in the Scriptures that, that uh, it makes you, helps you to understand why did the Gospel writers write in a different way? Why, why does Matthew, Mark, and Luke, why don't they mention that it's Peter and John does? And there's our answer for us. Now, we need to take a little bit of a closer look at Peter's action because this is not at all what Jesus wanted. Now, in Luke, we actually discovered that the disciples asked about this. They said, should we use our swords? 
In Luke uh, 22:49, when they which were about him, that is disciples, when they saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And Peter never waited to hear the answer to that question. And so being the impetuous fellow that he was, he charged in and he cut off this guy's ear. You ever think sometimes that we're a little bit too hard on Peter? We call him a coward. We know what's going to happen a little bit later. Uh, a little maid comes to him and asks him if he'd been with Jesus. And Peter said, no, I don't even know the man. And we brand him a coward. But you think about it for a moment. How much courage would it take to charge 700 men with a dagger? And that's what it was, really a short dagger. How, how much courage would it take to do that, especially with... 600 of them being trained Roman soldiers. How much courage does that take? Now perhaps Peter was thinking, here we go guys. And he runs forward with his dagger and he turns around and looks. I mean, he's out there in the middle of Pickett's charge without Pickett's men. Oh, Peter was a, a, a brave guy, but you know it doesn't make any difference. And Whether it's one man or 11 of disciples against 700, that's not very good odds. At least not unless you're Samson. And Peter was not Samson, so what he did, he just charged hell with a water pistol and thought all was good. You know, it kind of reminds me of the fools that you see on TV. You hear uh, these people like Joyce Meyer and Kenneth Copeland, and they'll be preaching and they'll stop and they'll say, I rebuke you, Satan. I bind you, Satan. Yeah, right. You got as much power to bind Satan as Peter did to get 700 soldiers. That's an impossibility. But it's not Jesus way to fight. He surrendered. He didn't want any defense. I mean, he, he certainly didn't need anybody to defend him. I mean, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, he doesn't need somebody to come to his aid to fight for him. And he pretty much erases any such thoughts with verse number 53. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? And do I need to remind you what angels can do? One angel in one night killed 185,000 Assyrians. And Jesus is speaking here of 12 legions of angels. That's 72,000 or more angels. And what Jesus did was just use gross hyperbole to say, I don't need your help. I don't need anybody's help. And I think there's actually intentional comfort in those words. Remember, Paul wrote later, if God is for us, who can be against us? All we need is Jesus. Now, I do have to comment on this because uh, I'm prone to do so every, every time I see an uncommon witness of God's sovereign power. I mean, how strange is it that we have a brand of theology that teaches that God is powerless against man's will? That God stands back with his hands tied behind his back. He can't conquer man's will unless man gives him permission. Isn't that strange that... People want to stand in the place of God. Can't you see that it's Jesus that grants permission? People don't do anything without his permission. And here we think that God has to have our permission. Somebody needs a little, little bit more study on this thing. So Jesus told Peter, says, put up your sword. And he said, those that take the sword are going to perish with the sword. And I have to tell you, that's the source of endless debate about pacifism. What did Jesus mean when he said, those that take the sword will perish with the sword? Well, the answer is not really all that difficult when you consider what's just been said. 
Peter committed an unlawful act. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't reveal Peter's identity because of that. And so this verse has nothing at all to do with pacifism. It has to do with the right of government to punish evildoers. Now you compare that to Romans 13 verse 4, which speaks of the civil magistrate. And Paul writes there, For he is a minister, or the magistrate is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do with that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Now, what Jesus was warning Peter was that if you act unlawfully, if you take up a sword, you're going to be punished or killed with a sword. And it's not talking about pacifism, and you can understand that very well as you look at what Jesus would do himself. He never taught that there would be peace without conflict. You just look at what he's going to do, his method of winning peace. He's going to come, and the Bible says what? He'll conquer with a sword. And... Neither is Jesus saying here, you shouldn't try to defend yourself. Now often, the scripture is used, turn the other cheek, and people say, well, that, that's, that's against self-defense. You shouldn't defend yourself. And I'm often asked this question, should a Christian own a gun? Should a Christian own a gun? And my answer to that is no. A Christian should own at least two guns, one for him and one for his wife. In Luke 22, verse 36, Jesus said, There may come a time when you have to sell all of your clothes to buy a sword. And what could he have meant unless he was saying, Someday you're going to have to defend yourself. And this is just another awesome demonstration of Christ's power. He needs no defense. Somehow that's lost on his disciples. It's also lost on those who came to arrest him. And there's a good lesson here as well. Uh, for us to see how that Christ's kingdom operates. Richard the Lionhearted thought that swords and crusades for Christ were mandated. The crusaders actually thought that people ought to be killed or forced to become Christians. And Roman Catholicism obviously had taught them that, and they'd still be doing the same thing if it wasn't for the smallness of the world and international forces that they're against. Millions of people have died in the name of Christianity. Uh, The popes waged war against people to make them bend their will to the pope's pleasure. In the Dark Ages, there were millions of Baptists that were killed because we would not renounce our faith. And if you go to Israel today, we're talking a thousand years after the Crusades, people still hate Christianity. I mean, this is still a motivation for them. They don't like Christianity because this is a very bitter memory. The, the, the crusaders killed thousands upon thousands of Muslims, but they also killed Jews, and they killed people that were not their brand of Christianity. And the lesson that's to be learned here is that Christianity can't be forced on people. Faith is a matter of the heart. It's not outward conformity to rules. And Baptists have always fought for religious liberty. From the earliest days of our country, we were there at the forefront of the fight to add an amendment to the Constitution that granted religious freedom. And in 1792, that amendment was made to the Constitution because Baptists were the ones who stood the most to gain because we were the most persecuted. And so we were right there behind all of that to make that amendment happen. And so that makes it very, very strange that today we have Baptists that are involved in fights to end religious freedom. 
And I'm not going to go into that now. I'm just going to say this, that the church has no business doing its business by government action. The Holy Spirit works in the hearts of men. This is what Paul says about Christian warfare. He says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So we don't conquer with a sword, not a physical sword, and we don't do it with governmental action. The only sword that we have is the Word of God. And so what am I saying? It's just this, that whenever government gets involved to do the work of the church, you will end up with persecution. I mean, after all, whose doctrine are we going to enforce? Will that be the Episcopalians? Will that be the Catholics? Will it be the Presbyterians? All of that's been tried before. And what makes you think that a Baptist would possibly do any better? Jesus and the apostles never talked about government except to obey it. Obey it as long as it doesn't act contrary to God's word. But we need to go back to the main thing. Jesus stopped Peter and he corrected the mistake. And the worst mistake there is thinking that he needed protection or even that he wanted someone to prevent his arrest. No, he doesn't want anybody to prevent it. Everything's going exactly according to the plan. And before we leave that point, I have to reemphasize this, that Jesus was willing to go. He put up no resistance. But he didn't let it all go by without throwing a barb first at the injustice of the action. And we see it in Matthew 26, 55. In that same hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and ye laid no hold on me. Now there the King James says, You came at me like a thief. The word actually means a robber, which means someone who would offer armed resistance. That you came at me like I was going to offer up some kind of resistance, that I have a weapon with me to defend myself. And then he pointed out to them that the show of force was totally unnecessary. Why would they come at him with swords and staves and with clubs? when he sat there every day in the temple teaching them peacefully. Well, there's a good reason why they didn't take him then. They had to do this under the cover of darkness. They had to be away from the city because they know these are actions that are unjust. What they had done, they'd gone to Pilate and they lied to him and said that Jesus was about to commit insurrection. And you remember, that's why they have these soldiers with them. Now let me finish then with this. And that is prophetic scriptures. Verse 56. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled, that all the disciples forsook him and fled. It was all done that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Now let's understand what that means. He's saying that it's all done the way the scripture says it will be done. Now the first thing that you have to notice about this is the absence of plan B. There are no contingency plans. Jesus had no fear at all that Judas might choose the wrong place to look for him. He had no fear at all that Judas was going to show up some other place besides the Garden of Gethsemane. And he, he was sure of this, that he didn't need another plan because nobody was going to cooperate with the original plan. And when he got up from his prayer, 
He knew Judas and the mob were already there. They were standing just outside the gate. He knew that when Judas approached him, that he wasn't going to be misidentified. He was going to be taken, and there's no mistake about that. He knew that when Peter struck the high priest servant with the sword and cut off his ear, that that was going to spark a melee, that nobody's going to get out alive. He knows all of that. There are no contingency plans. Everything will go just as Scripture said. Now, the outworking of all of the details is one of the most difficult parts of Scripture to understand. How did these men do exactly what they wanted to do? And yet, at the same time, it worked according to God's predetermined plan. And we get hung up on things like that. And we wonder, where does God's sovereignty end? Where does human responsibility begin? How do you put those things together? And so there's an objection that's made on one end that God's sovereignty makes everybody a robot. And then on the other end, you go to the opposite extreme and people say, we can't trump, or we can't trump rather, God's sovereign purpose. And we would maintain that neither of those positions is true. We argue, according to our historic Baptist confessions of faith that are based on Scripture, that God ordains all that comes to pass, but he does it in such a way that he does no violence to the will of his creatures. And that's proved in this story. Jesus said, Scripture must be fulfilled. Everything has to go according to the sovereign plan, but we don't see anything at all here about God twisting somebody's arm to make it happen. Everybody does what they want to do. And it's so remarkable that despite all of the miraculous displays of Jesus' power, the omniscience of the timing of the event, that people falling backwards at the sound of his voice, of Jesus healing a man, putting his ear back on after it's been cut off, it's amazing that after all of that, none of these people do differently. None of them do differently. God is definitely not trying to override their will. And do you know when we play, uh, apply that same concept to salvation, our confession of faith says that God secures voluntary obedience to the gospel. Nobody comes kicking and screaming. God's grace is effectual. It works with a new nature that's been implanted in regeneration. And that new nature that's been enlightened by the gospel of Christ in the regenerate causes him to act with a willing heart. He comes to Christ because he wants to. There's no violence done to the will. So no one ever needs to complain that, God, that man is a robot because God is sovereign. God never violates the will. Some he never regenerates. Some of them never come to faith. Judas didn't, neither did the men that were with him. They didn't come to faith in Christ. Judas didn't come after seeing all the miracles, and neither did these men. But there are 11 apostles who are regenerated, and they do come to Christ. They might forsake him at first, but they realize that Jesus is worth giving all your heart, your soul, your mind, and even your physical life to if necessary. Now as we look at that today, my prayer for you is that God will open your eyes to the gospel. And when that happens, you'll know it. And there won't be a sense of you doing something different from what you really want to do. Now, when you come to Christ, you'll come because you want to. The Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I can promise you this, that when you call, you'll call because you have a heart that's been opened by the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we'll return to this text. And we see Judas doing what God said a thousand years before would be done. 
and you look at this and follow it through and see the workings of God with this, we go to Acts chapter 1, and there we find the disciples meeting to choose a replacement for Judas. And the apostle Peter used as his authority to do that what was written in Psalms. He went back to the scriptures and said, this is why we do that. Judas by transgression fell. It's written in Psalms. Exactly as God said it would be. And do you remember, though, that when Jesus, Jesus had promised the disciples, he said, you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. And he was talking about the millennium. But we have a problem here. One fell. Well, Judas was never intended to sit on a throne. And that's why we see Acts chapter 1, and they're choosing another apostle to replace Judas. Because God's plans don't fail. Jesus knew all of this was going to happen. Now, to sum it all up, we come to this and say all of this is done for this reason. Christ loves sinners. All of his work is done perfectly so that Christ will go to the cross in behalf of his people. God came to earth with this plan that was devised before the world was ever created. He fully intended that he would have a people for his own name. And we recognize that that's what he came to do. And then not me and not you, not any king, not any government, not even the devil himself with all of his demons can stop Christ from accomplishing his perfect plan. He came to do the appointed task. You know what he said? He said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. And he will seek and he will save all that he came for. I never have any doubt about that because I trust Jesus Christ to do exactly what he said. He always works according to God's plan. You can be saved today if you trust him. And if you trust him, you can be sure of this. He knew you would. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we are so thankful for your word and what we learned from it. Uh, we serve a sovereign God. We're thankful for that. All things work according to your, to your plan. And Lord, we just pray that you would open the hearts of lost sinners because I can't do it. I could never, ever preach a sermon that was powerful enough, compelling enough, with enough exhortation to move any sinner of any kind to you. That's only done by your sovereign work. So Lord, I put it all into your hands. We, we preach and we let your spirit do the work. And that's all that we can do and all we're commanded to do. Lord, speak to your people today. Help us to rejoice in this, that we know you and that you have a plan for us. And we thank you for that. Uh, we thank you for your amazing grace. Open the eyes of sinners to this today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.